These are the opening sounds from track one of Ice Cube's 1992 album, The Predator. The track is titled The First Day of School, and it depicts the sounds that one might hear as part of the intake process into a jail or prison as a new inmate. Such sounds as these have been heard by many U.S. residents. As the author of one recent book noted, the U.S. is home to 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prisoners. The author of this book is John Pfaff, a professor of law at Fordham University, and the book's title is Locked In, The True Causes of Mass Incarceration and How to Achieve Real Reform. This book was recently selected by the Marshall Project as one of the best books about criminal justice that their staff had read this year. John recently sat down to talk by phone with me about his work, and I feature excerpts from that conversation in this episode of Tatter, which is titled Non-Standard. So the standard story is many things, but the three parts of it that I focus on the most are this idea that prison populations have been driven primarily by longer sentences, uh, they've been driven primarily by the war on drugs, and that they've been driven in large part by this very privatized prison industrial complex and, and, the role of, and sort of the central role of private prisons. And none of those aspects is wrong. Our sentences are longer than elsewhere, and we would have fewer people in prison if it weren't for those sentences. Uh, the war on drugs has sent people to prison. Uh, private prisons, at least as designed today, don't help. Um, but none of them is central, and each of them causes us to miss what really matters. So it's not longer sentences so much as it is people being sent to prison in the first place. It's not the legislator passing tougher laws. It's the prosecutor sending people there to start with. It's not so much the war on drugs as the war on violence. Uh, and no, over half of all people in prison are there for a violent crime. And by focusing entirely on the low-level nonviolent drug offender, we ignore the need to, to change how we punish people convicted of violence. Uh, and while private prisons aren't great, uh, they only hold about 8% of all prisoners. Uh, the public sector hold, public prisons hold the other 92%. And their power, which is vastly greater, uh, receives almost no attention and, and no criticism. A lot of people assume when they bought into the standard story that uh, a lot of people who are in prison are nonviolent, low-level drug offenders. But when you talk, when you actually look at how many are incarcerated, can you talk about how many are actually in there? So, even before we get to the low-level nonviolent, just looking at how many people are in prison for drugs, um, as it stands today in the state systems, and the states hold about nine, about eighty to ninety percent of all people in prison are in the states. About fifteen percent of those are in for a drug offense. Um, and the most ever uh, nationwide was about 20, 21% uh, in the early 1990s, and it's fallen pretty much steadily since then. Um, so that's, that's drug offenders. Um, whether it's the lowest level street corner kid to you know the highest level dealer, that comes to about 15%. Um, what fraction of those are sort of your true low-level nonviolent? It's going to be less than that. It, it, our data is, is ugly enough that it's hard to um, it's hard to really know, but it, I mean, some estimates put it at like you know maybe four, five, six percent of people in prison are really the, that you know often discussed low-level nonviolent drug offender. Suppose that all of those drug offenders were to be released. Uh, right now, the U.S., uh, unless I'm mistaken, is the uh, number one 
uh, country in the world in terms of our incarceration rate. So the U.S. has the highest incarceration rate out of all, all countries. Uh, is that correct? So almost correct. Okay. Uh, we're technically speaking number two right now um, because the Seychelles is currently number one. Okay. Uh, but I'm checking right now. The Seychelles, I believe their entire prison population is under 1,000 people. They only have 99,000 people in the country. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're number two, but uh, yeah, let me see here. I can give it to you right now. The, the total number of people that the Seychelles has in prison is, is um, 699. And we have about 2.2 million. Uh, so for all intents and purposes, we're number one. And certainly um, among industrialized nations, we're number one. Yes. And the other but I sometimes hear is that the, the, sort of the world incarceration tables exclude North Korea and Iran for lack of reliable data. So some say maybe they're worse than us, to which I respond, if your defense of us is <laughs> we're better than North Korea and Iran, then I, I think we basically I've won the argument that we have too many people in prison. Um, so yeah, so we have the highest rate. If we release everyone who's currently in prison for drugs today, I believe we would still have the world's highest incarceration rate. It wouldn't be enough to knock us out of first place. Uh, what, approximately what percentage are in federal prison? It's about somewhere between 10 to 12 percent are in the federal system and about 88 to 90 percent are, are in the state system. And the feds are much more drug focused. Mm-hmm. Um, about half of all people in the federal system are there for drugs. Um, because the federal government simply can't touch a lot of crimes. They have a very, very narrow range of, of jurisdiction. Um, but the one, one of the things they really can aggressively go after uh, for tedious constitutional reasons are, are drugs. Um, but, but again, they're, they're only about 10% of the systems. So their, their overall impact is, is, is fairly minor. So then... Even though I personally used to believe, prior to reading some of your work, I used to believe that federal mandatory minimum sentencing guidelines were uh, a major driver of uh, the growth in incarceration and the high levels of incarceration we see in the U.S. compared to other industrialized countries. It sounds as if I'm wrong about that, or I was wrong about that. Yeah, and and it's a very common misperception. Uh, people, I think because the feds get a tremendous amount of attention, we tend to sort of view criminal justice through the eyes of like, what the federal system looks like. Um, but it really is being driven by these much more state and county-specific policies than, than what the feds are doing, despite all, all the attention that the federal policies get. One of the things you mentioned in the book that I was struck by is when you take that into account, you realize you're not talking about one policy or one set of federal policies. You're talking about at least 50 policies if we're thinking state by state, but perhaps actually more than 3,000 because counties, even within a given state, uh, differ from one another. I never let my students use the phrase criminal justice system because that seems to imply it's some sort of coherent whole, and it's not. We have 19,000 police and sheriff's departments. The police departments are run by Police chiefs who are appointed by city mayors, the, the, the sheriff's departments are run by sheriffs who are elected directly by the county. Um, the next stage in the system is the prosecutor who in most states is elected by the county, so he's completely independent of anyone else. There's no one who can tell that local county DA what to do. Uh, there's about 2,500 DA offices nationwide. The reason why there's fewer DAs, some, some states aggregate several counties into one district, but basically every county has its own DA. Um, on top of that, you have... Um, 
the, 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 you know, sort of the judges who might be elected by the county, might be elected by the state, might be appointed by the county, might be appointed by the state. Uh, the governor might play a role in that. He might not. Um, when they get when you get convicted, you either get sent to prison and that's run and funded by the state. You might get sent to jail uh, for a lesser offense that's run and funded by the county. Uh, you might get put on probation, uh, which is oftentimes funded by the county. Uh, you get released according to parole uh, from prison, and the parole board is run by the state uh, by people appointed by the governor. Um, the laws are all passed by legislators who are nominally state officials, but oftentimes represented no. They might represent a couple towns or, you know, in the case of New York City, they, they might represent like a 15 square block area of, of New York City. And so the idea that there's some sort of coherent system here uh, is crazy. Um, and many of the problems come from the way that we sort of fracture costs and benefits across all these various levels of government and no one's ever really in charge and no one really bears all the full costs of their decisions. Uh, and, and so the system kind of stumbles along in sort of this, this chaotic, ill-formed kind of way. And all those people say, like, the system's doing what it's designed to do, and this system is not designed to do anything. There's, there's, no, there's no coherent design here. We might allow the imperfections to persist because of who they hurt more and who they hurt less, right? So, so, it's, so it's, it's lastingness might be somewhat intentional, but the system was never designed in any really coherent, logical way. I would flunk a first-year political science grad student if they turn in the paper saying this is what a system ought to look like. And so one way you see this you know, we talk about, you know, states that decarcerate, right? Why is New York State declining in prison populations and Oklahoma rising? Um, but that really gets the story wrong. Uh, and so New York State is a good example. So New York State actually has, along with, alongside New Jersey, uh, has actually has the longest sustained decarceration in the country. While we talk a lot about all the changes since 2010, which was the first time since 1972 that the overall U.S. prison population dropped, New York has been declining since 1999. Hmm. And lots of people say, wow, that what is, well, too few people ask, but those who focus on this ask, now, what has New York State done that, that's worked? But the catch is, is that New York State didn't decarcerate. New York City did. The state prison system is run, the prison system is run by the state government, mm-hmm. but it's the decision of local county DAs to determine who gets sent to prison. And what we see is over the course of the 2000s, 2010s, New York City keeps sending fewer and fewer and fewer people to state prison. The remaining 60 counties in New York State keep sending more and more and more people to prison. And so, but the catch is that New York City is such a big fraction of the state's population, such a big fraction of the state's prisoners, that New York City's decision to send fewer people to prison caused the state average to fall. But until the late 2010s, no other county really deserved any credit for, for doing that. So, at one point in your answer, you referred to cost and benefits. And I recall that at one point early in the book, when you're talking about suburbs versus urban cores, you refer to a quote, segregation of costs and benefits. Can you elaborate on what you meant there? Sure. So I think one of the things that allows a surprising degree of sort of problematic behavior to persist is the way in which we elect prosecutors. So, like I said, prosecutors are elected by the county. Uh, and for most cities, with a few notable exceptions, for most cities, the city itself is part of a bigger county. Right? So, so Chicago doesn't have a prosecutor. Cook County has a prosecutor. Mm-hmm. And half of Cook County lives in Chicago, and half of Cook County doesn't. Uh, and in other 
urban areas, the ratio is even more suburban friendly uh, than, than Chicago, which is about 50-50. But those, those, the, the, those ring suburbs in the county tend to have disproportionate political power. They tend to be wealthier. They tend to be whiter. Uh, those are both correlated with voting more. Uh, they tend to be um, more conservative. Uh, you know, urban areas tend to be poor, more minority. Uh, voting is always, often harder in those areas, both because it's harder to just take time off on Tuesday. Uh, you know, since the ending of the Voting Rights Act, we've seen you know, aggressive efforts to, to undersupply those areas with, with voting options. Um, also, in some states, people there have a hard time voting because of explicit felony disenfranchisement policies that make it hard for them to or impossible for them to vote. And so what this means is the fact that the people who have the most control in choosing the prosecutor are those who feel the benefits of things being safer. They feel safer going into the city for their job. They feel safer going to the city on a Friday night to go see a show. Um, so they want that aggressive enforcement that makes them feel safer, but they don't feel the cost. Right. It's not their brother or uncle or nephew or son or daughter who's being needlessly stopped, needlessly detained, excessively punished, and, you know, charged, convicted, incarcerated. And, and so they kind of ignore all those costs that come from, from incarceration and punishment. And these costs are huge uh, and, and poorly understood. <clears throat> Evidence from New York State show that one year in prison tends to take off two years of expected lifespan, at least in the short to medium term. Uh, the risk of dying from a drug overdose skyrockets. Um, shortly upon release from prison, because in prison the drugs you're taking are lower quality and more expensive, but you don't get completely kicking, you don't completely kick your habit. When you get released, you're still using, but the drugs that are now available are cheaper and more potent, and your tolerance is lower, and, and so you die. Um, families get broken up, family formation becomes harder. You know, people tend to marry and date and marry people who live in their own neighborhoods, uh, and in some high enforcement neighborhoods. The male-female ratio can hit things like 60-40. Female-male ratio hits 60-40. There are six women for every four men because so many young men are locked up in prison. And that makes it hard for, for families to form when, when the gender imbalance gets, gets too great. But none of these costs are, are felt by the people who have the greatest say in, in who the prosecutor is. And that's always going to push the prosecutor to be much more aggressive than he perhaps should be because politically he doesn't – take that as much heat as he should for, for, for the sort of these, these, these sprawling costs that come from, from needlessly aggressive enforcement. Wow. Uh, you really know how to bring a man down in the morning. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, someone once said he follows me on Twitter because every day I expose him to some new horror of the criminal justice system. <laughs> I took it as a compliment. Uh, did you say system singular or system plural just then? He might have said system singular. If, if I said that, I'm going to blame it on him. Although, although <laughs> I will say, like, it, that, that's, it's a fair point. Like, it is, I think language matters a lot, and it's remarkable how insidiously it gets embedded, right? So I tell my students, never say criminal justice system, and I say it all the time. Um, or another, I think, even more important example is I never use the word violent offender, um, I think it's a very dangerous phrase to use because it tends to imply that this is who that person is. You are a violent person. But violence isn't a state. It's a phase. People age into and then age out of violence. And our policies tend to ignore that aging out component. We tend to throw the book at people uh, when they're older. Right? You don't get your third strike when you're 18 and aging into violence. In, in, I think in Pennsylvania, the median age in which you receive your third strike is something like 42 which is well into the phase which people are actually starting to stop engaging in violence. And so I really emphasize crimes of violence, not violent offender, to, to draw that distinction that this is not defining the person. Yet despite the fact that in my book I write, never use the phrase violent offender, um, 
the phrase kept popping up with every draft I did. Right? Every time I do a new draft, I find that I, I inserted that phrase again just because it, it's so deeply embedded in how we talk about things. And, and I think you know, there is a growing push to say we need to simply change the, the language we use to talk about this um, because it really does sort of embed a lot of assumptions and kind of reinforces them as, as we talk about it. The debate had to start with drug offenses and other kinds of nonviolent crimes. It was just practically 40, 35 to 40 years of just slow, steady, unrelenting growth. That's growth in incarceration rates. Um, and it's really, especially between 72 and, and 2000 in particular, it's, this is, this, it's almost like the line's almost drawn with a ruler, right? It just is this slow, steady, un, unchanging rise for, for 30 years. It then kind of gets, it sort of slows down a little bit in, in the 2000s. And so you don't see that kind of steady growth for decades and then have your first reform bill be the, you know, let murderers out of prison early law, right? You have, you, you've, you've got to start with what is most politically palatable, and that was drugs and, and property crimes. And I think there's a lot to be said for it is unavoidable to start there. But the problem we have now, why, I sort of stay, why, why, I, why I'm not sort of uniformly happy about our approach, um, is that, like I said, about 50-some percent of all people in prison, 53-54 percent, are there for a crime of violence. Um, there are almost as many people in prison for murder, just murder today, as the entire prison population in 1972, mm-hmm. uh, even though our crime rates are basically the same in, in, in both periods. Um, you know, almost all the people serving long sentences um, are there for crimes of violence. So about, I believe, something like two-thirds of all people who have spent at least, um, I believe 97% of all people who have spent at least 10 years in prison are there for a crime of violence. And about two-thirds to 80% of them are in just for murder. Right? So we have these incredibly long sentences, almost entirely served by viol- people convicted of violence. And, yet, and so at some point, if we really want to start scaling things back uh, in a meaningful way, we have to change the way we handle crimes of violence. And the concern I have is that we've, we've emphasized the low-level, nonviolent drug offenders so much, they've actually convinced the American electorate that this is all we have to do. Uh, Vox did a, Vox.com did a really good nationwide survey of about 3,000 people. Um, and one question they asked was, do you think about half of all people are in prison for drugs? Uh, and you know, a majority of all the respondents, and they broke it out by liberal, moderate, and conservative, a majority of all three groups said, yes, a majority are there for drugs. Okay. Problematic mistake, but we can address that. It's the next question that that really unsettled me. The next question was, do you think we should punish those convicted of violence who pose little threat of reoffending? Should we punish them less? And 55% of liberals, 60% of moderates, and 65% of conservatives said no. Mm-hmm. Right? That we've simply convinced ourselves that we can do this all to the low-level nonviolent drug offender. And while we have to start there, we have to at some point leave that behind. Um, and we're, having a, we're, we're slowly getting there, uh, but it, it's, I think it's, a, it's being made tougher by this, this sort of unrelenting emphasis on, on drugs and low-level offenses. I'm reminded of some work by some social psychologists, Kevin Carl Smith and colleagues, uh, whose work suggests that m- people's intuitions are retributivist. They may claim to endorse a consequentialist approach where they think that the purpose of uh, the criminal justice systems 
uh, is to reduce the rate of future crime. But at some level, they intuitively endorse an eye for an eye. Do, do, do you do you deny this this idea that people's intuitions, at least in the U.S., are pretty retributivist, and that that, that and that that's going to be a major headwind to uh, reducing uh, the severity of punishment of violent offenders, even those who pose little risk of reoffense. I don't deny that that is where a significant portion of the electorate is right now, right? So, I mean, a couple of catches. First of all, there's nothing inherently human to being retributive because we're the only country, only major country in the world that has, has this level of severity towards offenders, right? There's something very cultural, not innate to us, right? Compare our punishments to punishments in Europe, uh, and it, it's night and day, yeah. um, both in terms of sentence length and in terms of treatment of prisoners. Um, and so obviously there's something cultural here more than, than just sort of like something inherent to humans, and that to me suggests it, it's, it's malleable. You know, also, you know, retributivism wasn't really a dominant theory, even in the 70s, even amongst the, amongst the electorate, right? It's come into force now, and perhaps it was driven in some part by the rise in crime we saw over the course of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and, and some bad responses we had to that, that rise in crime. Um, but I would agree that people, the current political norms have a significant amount of retributivism in them, yes. I'm less confident as to how durable that retributivism is. I also wonder how generational it is. Mm-hmm. If you look at like the Senate Judiciary Committee, right, the people who are really pushing hard for reform are people like Cory Booker. And the person who's sort of most sort of jamming it up in a weird kind of way uh, is Grassley. And there's a lot of differences between Booker and Grassley. Right? But one of them, I think, importantly, is just age. You know, Grassley is old and Booker is not. And Grassley lived through the rise in crime. And I think like all the other boomers remain sort of very politically wary of anything that might cause crime to go back up. Booker spent most of his political life during time of declining crime. Crime started dropping in 1991, right? It's been dropping for almost 30 years now. Um, And and so I think Booker's cohort, like my cohort and and the millennials coming up behind us, I think they they will have a different approach because they've grown up with a different sense of what crime is and and its centrality in day-to-day life. Well, I wonder about a – I think that's right. But I wonder about another difference between Grassley uh, and Booker. Um, (laughs) Besides the most obvious one or is that that the one you're going to point to? Well, what I'm, well, I'm not going to race. That, that was what you were thinking, but we could talk about that. But actually, I mean, I'm sure that plays a big role in it too. I mean, but but yes, but, but which one were you going to point to? Grassley represents Iowa. He represents a, a rural, uh, yes, predominantly white, but also a rural and conservative state. And within the Senate, uh, rural states uh, voters uh, have disproportionate influence relative to more. Uh, urban uh, centers because every state has two senators. Okay. And so I, I wonder if that also, I wonder if at a general level, the disproportionate influence on federal policy that might come from uh, senators from rural white states might also contribute at least to policy at the federal level, contribute to policies that are going to be more punitive. I think that's, that's absolutely right. Um, you know, the feds are a uniquely, almost insanely punitive system. Uh, if you take two, and uniquely so, right? I think if you take the two states that differ the most in criminal justice, they would have much more in common with each other than either would have in common with the feds. And I think one serious part of that is exactly what you said, that you have, you know, half of all people 
And as it stands today, half of all crime is in about 10 or 11 states. That's 22 senators. The other half of the country that has much lower levels of crime and much fewer people, they have 78 senators, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so sort of these, these rural areas for which crime becomes much more of a symbolic issue and, and toughness on crime is less about solving problems uh, and more about making some sort of statement. Um, they have a much louder voice. Uh, I think one reason why states seem more rational is that the areas that have a lot of crime tend to have the loudest political voice as well. Right? So, you know, New York City, you know, we have about half the crime. We also have about half the state assembly people and about half the state senators. Right. So, so when it comes time for, no, Albany is, is a profoundly dysfunctional place, but I think our, you know, the places that have crime have, have, have a much louder voice in the cities and they're in, in the state capitals. And therefore, at least there's a, a better chance that their policies are going to actually focus more on perhaps what works than on what is sort of symbolically satisfying to do. So then, what are some reforms that could make more of a difference than the ones that might seem to follow from the standard story. Right. So, I mean, speaking broadly, I think we need to focus on regulating what prosecutors do more. Uh, they are completely unregulated. They face almost no oversight, no guidelines, no, no real political pressure to change what they're doing. That, that's starting to shift, um, but, but very, very slowly. You know, my, my research has shown that at least since crime started falling in the 90s, almost all the growth in incarceration has come from decisions that are completely discretionary to the prosecutor to make. In particular, you know, as crime has gone down, the actual number of arrests have gone down, so fewer and fewer people are entering the criminal justice system. Um, yet as arrests went down, the number of people charged with felonies went up. And, and that, that increase seems to have basically been the main driver of, of prison growth, right? So we're arresting fewer people, but we're charging more of them with serious crimes. And that, that's entirely within sort of the unfettered discretion of prosecutors. Yet, one of the things I, I found so frustrating during the 2016 presidential campaign is that when Hillary Clinton rolled out her end-to-end criminal justice reform plan, she talked about fixing the police and fixing parole and never talked about prosecutors. Mm-hmm. It wasn't end-to-end. It was end and end, mm-hmm. and she jumped over the middle, uh, and the middle is where everything is happening. Uh, and I don't say that to you know, pick on, on her. Uh, her policy reflected very much this conventional wisdom uh, that, that overlooks prosecutors and focuses entirely on sort of longer sentences and parole, those things that are run by the legislature. And, and they're, they're not irrelevant, but they're not, they're not central. Um, so similarly, we need to focus much more on violence. Right? We need to think differently about how we respond to violence and not make violence kind of this permanently excluding act from which you can never recover socially, which is kind of how we treat it today. Uh, And we need to stop talking about private prisons, which really don't matter that much, and focus much more on the tremendous amount of public sector power behind this. So, you know, two examples I use to sort of highlight just how vast this public sector power is. Now, the private prisons make about $400 million in profit every year. The guard union, the guards in wages and benefits make about $35 billion a year versus $400 million in profits to the private prisons. They get a tremendously larger chunk of the change, and they have a much stronger incentive to, to fight against any sort of reform. Right? Mm-hmm. And guard unions are notorious for being effect- either fighting against reforms, or at least if the reforms go through, they're very good at making sure no one loses their job. Uh, and if you don't 
cut staffing, you don't get any savings. We keep talking about we're going to you know, cut prisons and reinvest all this money into you know, community alternatives and treatment and, and programs that work better than prison and everything tends to work better than prison. Uh, but then when you actually implement the law, the savings never show up. And the savings never show up because we never lay off the guards. And we don't lay off the guards because, like the prosecutors, they're flying under the radar. Um, and when, you know, when a state goes to close a major prison and says, we had, no, we're going to close the prison, but we haven't decided what's going to happen with staffing yet, no one complains about the fact that that's the only way you're going to save money, right? It goes unremarked upon in newspaper article after newspaper article that, you know, the, the, correctional, the State Department of Corrections is not discussing employment history. And sure enough, when they actually close the prison six months later, you realize they lay off almost nobody, right? So I saw this play out in Michigan where Michigan announced they're going to close a major prison. I employed about 250 guards. Uh, at the time of the announcement, they said, we're, we're still talking to the union about staffing. And when they finally closed the prison, 30 guards lost their job out of 250. And if you read like paragraph 17 of the article, you saw that those 30, all 30 who lost their job, opted for an early retirement buyout versus being reassigned to a prison that was slightly further away. Right? So basically, they, they would have been okay laying off zero. Uh, Pennsylvania once closed two prisons and laid off three guards across two whole prisons. Right? Um, and because we focus so much on these evil private prisons that aren't really all that big a deal in most states, uh, we, we sort of let the public sector just glide through un unmolested. The census story, which sounds boring, and the census story is, 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 is it's simply this. In 46 states, prisoners count as living in the prison for the purpose of, sense, of the census, not in the neighborhoods they came from. Prisons are disproportionately rural. Prisoners are disproportionately people of color from the cities. Prisons are disproportionately in conservative areas. Prisoners are disproportionately likely to probably vote Democratic. So we're taking all these minority Democratic-leaning voters from demo solidly Democratic areas and moving them to rural areas. But in 44 of those 46 states, they can't vote. Mm -hmm. They count as five-fifths of a person, and they have zero votes. And all across the country... There are rural state representatives and rural city representatives whose entire political survival requires them to have people in those prisons because those prisoners get counted as living in the cities, not those rural prisons. Their populations will drop by just enough that the next census borders have to start moving and seats start disappearing. And while the impact might not be that great, you know, in a study in Pennsylvania found that if you, if you accounted for this shift, maybe one or two or three seats would change hands. You know, in Pennsylvania, where, where Republicans have solid majorities, that's not much. But when New York State actually did change its policy, it basically changed control of the state Senate, right? That, that the Republicans had maintained a majority entirely through, I mean, many things, but on, at the end of the day, they needed those prisoners to keep their majority. You know, so on the one hand, this is boring and dry. Like, let's talk about where the census counts people. But when I tell that story, people really do seem genuinely horrified, right? You know, like, I can't believe we actually count, like, black men as living where they're not allowed to vote. It is, it is literally straight out of, you know, pre-Civil War counting mm -hmm. systems, right? And so I think there are ways to tell these incredibly boring stories. Sorry, not boring, it's the wrong word. But to point to these very sort of, technocratic but fundamental issues um, and, and get people mobilized. If I am an activist who is committed 
to reform and committed to so you've spoken to at least a couple of specific reforms so guidelines that would limit the discretion of prosecutors but also reforms that would free up space to actually lay off uh, a non-trivial number of guards as the size of the prison population declines do you have specific advice to such an activist on to whom they would advocate and how would they advocate to get either of those two things to happen? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question. And it's a question I kind of wrestle with a lot myself. I mean, I've spent, I, my focus is on sort of the, you know, the empirical 30,000 yeah. foot kind of look at, at things, not like who do you actually talk to on the ground, yeah. you know, sort of the more organizing mobilization thing. I mean, there are, every state does have groups that are doing this. I think, you know, I think, no, one of the more sort of mainstream organizations that that's doing a lot of this um, recently, in particular when it comes to prosecutors, is the ACLU. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are in a very aggressive effort to educate people on just how powerful prosecutors are and try to think about ways to actually change what prosecutors do. Um, but I also think oftentimes there are a lot of very, very local groups. They're doing a tremendous amount of, of organizing and protesting and pushing on these that get very little attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I wouldn't, I, I, I myself don't know, say, hey, in this city, look for that group, and in this city, look right. for that group. Right. But I would say the fact that, you know, oftentimes, like, no, the ACLU, when they released, they released, like, no, this, this big website in California recently started called meetyourda.org or knowyourda.org, and sort of, you know, lays out, like, here's what DAs do, and, and here's, you know, type in your address, here's your DA, here's their positions on, on various issues, and here's, like, how your county seems to feel about it, like, do they seem to really represent you? Like, and it's done in a very, like, user-friendly, very slick kind of way, and it's fantastic, and it gets tremendous attention and deserves it. Um, I also think, at the same time, there are lots of groups that are, you know, organizing, like, just, like, in the Bronx to complain about what the Bronx DA is doing, yeah. right? And, and, and those groups, I think, can play a very, very big role, and, and they will have, you know, the connections to the, the local assembly person, a local state senator who can actually, like, start pushing for some of these changes, or, you know, they, they, they know the, the DA's office, you know, political liaison to, to talk to them, and I think about trying to find those groups and get, get involved with them, even though they don't get, perhaps, the attention that, that they deserve. Posner, I mean, Posner was there. That's Richard Posner, who, until he recently retired, had been a U.S. appeals court judge for the Seventh Circuit in Chicago and who has also taught at the University of Chicago Law School, where John studied. Um, But he was in the law school. I never actually had a a class with him. But I I will say, one of the things that does, to toot my own horn horn here slightly, one of the things that gives me hope that our conversation about violence is shifting uh, is that in one of the last opinions he ever wrote before he retired, um, it, was, it was involving a case that had nothing to do really with violent crime. The person had been convicted of violence, but the entire appeal that Posner was writing about involved these really technical matters of like resentencing on appeal, right? It's a very technocratic, legalistic opinion. And he's dissenting from what the majority said. And the end of his dissent, apropos of nothing at all, he says, by the way, I think it's time for us to start talking about how we punish people convicted of violence, that we tend to punish them far too long, and we need to start figuring out how to punish them less aggressively. And, you know, cited some of my, my work on that. But, you know, Posner's not some, you know, left-wing, soft-on-crime type. But, you know, out of the blue, in the opinion, he felt compelled to say, you know, we need to really start thinking about punishing people convicted of violence in, in a less aggressive way, which, which gives me hope that it's, it really is a topic that's that slowly, you know, I used to call it the third rail of criminal justice reform. Yeah. I downgrade it now as like the 
2.75 rails of, of reform. Like it's, it's, it's still going to really hurt you, but it's not necessarily quite so lethal as it was before. Well, that story does give me hope. And another thing that you mentioned in the book that gives me hope is that at least on some issues of criminal reform, these interesting bipartisan coalitions can form where you have the people whom you might expect to support criminal justice reform, so uh, progressives, but then you also have uh, conservatives who are interested, budget hawks who are interested in finding economic savings that can result from shrinking prison populations, and even uh, some conservatives whose religious traditions might advocate for certain conceptions of of mercy. Um, Am I getting that right? Yeah, you're getting it absolutely right. And in fact, on the conservative side, one thing that gives me a lot of hope is that the the evangelical part of that coalition has been writing a lot lately on on the need to really fundamentally rethink how we view people who committed crimes. And from like exactly you said, like a much more redemptive perspective, uh, which which I think is great because the tax cutters are always they always struck me as sort of the, the least reliable yep. member of this broad coalition because as soon as crime goes up, they'll be okay yep. reallocating taxes right. back to crime control and taking away from something else. Right? It wasn't a real commitment to criminal justice reform. It was a commitment to saving money, and CJ just was a convenient place to save money when crime is low. Right. But the evangelicals, if, if you can convince them that this really is like, you know, Jesus forgave serious criminals on the cross. This is what you need to do. It's not about holding some permanent lifetime grudge. Like that will be the kind of ref- conservative base of reform that could persist even if primaries were to start trending upward somewhat. John Pfaff, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. It's been a real pleasure. And again, I encourage everyone, if they want to know more about uh, your research and your ideas, to check out the book. The book is Locked In, The True Causes of Mass Incarceration and how to achieve real reform. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. That's it for Tatter. If you want to follow John Pfaff on Twitter, his Twitter username is at John F. Pfaff. That's J-O-H-N-F-P-F-A-F-F. I strongly urge that you follow him. His Twitter contributions are quite engaging. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I am at Prof Diddy. That's P-R-O-F as in Frank, D-I-D-D-Y. For now, thanks for listening to Tatter and be well.